0: CD 11 Goodbye, ladies and gentlemen, he said. Mr Pump, be so good as to put the broom on the coach, would you? Broom? said Gilt, looking up sharply. That broom? The one with the stars in it? You're taking a broomstick? Yes, it will come in handy if we break down, said Moist. I protest, Arch-Chancellor, said Gilt, spinning round. This man intends to fly to Genoa." I have no such intention, said Moist. I resent the allegation. Is this why you appear so confident? snarled Gilt. And it was a snarl, there and then, a little sign of a crack appearing. A broomstick could travel fast enough to blow your ears off. It wouldn't need too many towers to break down, and heavens knew they broke down all the time for a broomstick to beat the clacks to Genoa, Especially since it could fly direct and wouldn't have to follow the big dogleg the coach rode and the grand trunk took. The trunk would have to be really unlucky and the person flying the broom would be really frozen and probably really dead, but a broomstick could fly from ankh to Genoa in a day. That might just do it. Gilt's face was a mask of glee. Now he knew what Moist intended. Round and round she goes and where she stops, nobody knows. It was the heart of any scam or fiddle. Keep the punter uncertain or, if he is certain, make him certain of the wrong thing. ''I demand that no broomstick is taken on the coach,'' said Gilt to the Arch-Chancellor, which was not a good move. ''You didn't demand anything from wizards. You requested. ''If Mr Lipvig is not confident in his equipment,'' Gilt went on, ''I suggest he concedes right now.'' ''We'll be travelling alone on some dangerous roads,'' said Moist. ''A broomstick might be essential.'' ''However, I'm forced to agree with this uh, gentleman,'' said Ridcully with some distaste. ''It would not look right, Mr Lipvig.'' Moist threw up his hands. "'As you wish, sir, of course. "'It is a blow. "'May I request even-handed treatment, though?' "'Your meaning?' said the wizard. "'There is a horse stationed at each tower "'to be used when the tower breaks down,' said Moist. "'That is normal practice,' snapped Gilt. "'Only in the mountains,' said Moist calmly. "'And even then, only at the most isolated towers. "'But today, I suspect, there's one at every tower. "'It's a Pony Express, Arch-Chancellor, "'with apologies to Mr Pony.' They could easily beat our coach without sending a word of code. You can't possibly be suggesting that we take the message all the way on horseback, said Gilt. Are you were suggesting I'd fly, said Moist. If Mr Gilt is not confident in his equipment, arch I suggest he concedes now. And there it was, a shadow on Gilt's face. He was more than just irate now. He'd passed into the calm, limpid waters of utter, visceral fury. ''So let's agree that this isn't a test of horses against broomsticks,'' said Moist. ''It's stagecoach against Clack's Tower. If the stage breaks down, we repair the stage. If a tower breaks down, you repair the tower.'' ''That seems fair, I must say,'' said Ridcully, ''and so I rule. However, I must take Mr Lipwig aside to issue a word of warning.'' The Arch-Chancellor put his arm round Moist's shoulders and led him around the coach. Then he leaned down until their faces were a few inches apart. You are aware, are you, that painting a few stars on a perfectly ordinary broomstick doesn't mean it will get airborne? he said. Moist looked into a pair of milky blue eyes that were as innocent as a child's, particularly a child who is trying hard to look innocent. My goodness, doesn't it? he said. The wizard patted him on the shoulder. Best to leave things as they are, I feel, he said happily. Gilt smiled at Moist as they returned. It was just too much to resist, so Moist didn't. Raise the stakes. Always push your luck, because no one else would push it for you. Would you care for a little personal wager, Mr Gilt, he said, just to make it interesting? Gilt handled it well. If you couldn't read the tells, the little signs. Dear me, Mr Lipwig, do the gods approve of gambling? he said, and gave a short laugh. ''What is life but a lottery, Mr. Gilt?'' said Moist. ''Shall we say one hundred thousand dollars?'' That did it. That was the last straw. He saw something snap inside Reacher Gilt. hundred thousand? Where would you lay your hands on that kind of money, Lipfig?'' ''Oh, I just placed them together, Mr. Gilt. Doesn't everyone know that?'' said Moist, to general amusement. He gave the chairman his most insolent smile. ''And where will you lay your hands on one hundred thousand dollars?'' ''Ha! Huh. I accept the wager.'' We shall see who laughs tomorrow, said Gilt bluntly. I'll look forward to it, said Moist. And now I have you in the hollow of my hand, he thought to himself. The hollow of my hand, you're enraged now. You're making wrong decisions. You're walking the plank. He climbed up onto the coach and turned to the crowd. Genua, ladies and gentlemen, Genua or bust. Someone will, yelled a wag in the crowd. Moist bowed, and as he straightened up, looked into the face of Bell Deerhart. ''Will you marry me, Miss Dearhart? he shouted. There was an ooh from the crowd, and Saccharissa had turned her head like a cat seeking the next mouse. What a shame the paper had only one front page, eh? Miss Dearhart blew a smoke ring. ''Not yet,'' she said calmly. This got a mixture of cheers and boos. Moist waved, jumped down beside the driver and said, ''Hit it, Jim!'' Jim cracked his whip for the sound of the thing, and the coach moved away amidst cheering. "'Moist looked back and made out Mr Pony, "'pushing determinedly through the crowd "'in the direction of the Tump Tower. "'Then he sat back and looked at the streets "'and the light of the coach lamps. "'Perhaps it was the gold "'working its way in from the outside. "'He could feel something filling him like a mist. "'When he moved his hand, "'he was sure that it left a trail of flecks in the air. "'He was still flying. "'Jim, do I look all right?' he said. "'Can't see much of you in this light, sir,' "'said the coachman. "'Can I ask a question? "'Go ahead, please.' Why do you give those barristers just those middle pages? Two reasons, Jim. It makes us look good and makes them look like whiny kids. And the other is, it's the bit with all the colour illustrations. I hear it takes ages to code one of those. You're so sharp you'll cut yourself, Mr Lipvig, eh? Damn straight. Drive like the blazes, Jim. Oh, I know how to give them a show, sir. You can bank on it. Yeah. The whip cracked again and the sound of the hooves bounced off the buildings. Six horses said Moist as they rattled up Broadway. Aye, sir. Might as well make a name for myself, sir, said the coachman. Slow down a bit when you get to the old wizard tower, will you? I'll get off there. Did you get some guards? Four of them, Mr. Lipveig, Jim announced. Lying low inside, men of repute and integrity. Known them since we was lads. Nosher Harry, Skullbreaker Tap, Grievous Bodley Armsworth, and Joe No-Nose Tozer. They're mate, sir. Don't you worry. And they're looking forward to a little oldie in Genua. ''Yeah, we've all got our buckets and spades,'' growled a voice from inside. ''I'd rather have them than a dozen watchmen,'' said Jim happily. The coach rattled on, leaving the outlying suburbs behind. The road under the wheels became rougher, but the coach swung and danced along on its steel springs. ''When you've dropped me off, you can rein them in a bit. No need to rush, Jim,'' said Moist after a while. In the light of the coach lamps, Moist saw Jim's red face glow with guile. ''It's your plan, eh, sir?'' It's a wonderful plan, Jim, said Moist, and I shall have to make sure it doesn't work. The lights of the coach disappeared, leaving Moist in chilly darkness. In the distance, the faintly glowing smokes of Ankh-Morpork made a great trailing mushroom of cloud that blotted out the stars. Things rustled in the bushes and the breeze wafted the scent of cabbages over the endless fields. Moist waited until he got some night vision. The tower appeared, a column of night without stars. All he had to do was find his way through the dense, brambly, root-knotted woodland. He made a noise like an owl. Since Moist was no ornithologist, he did this by saying, "'Woo, woo!' The woodland exploded with owl hoots, except that these were the owls that roosted in the old wizarding tower, which drove you mad in a day. It had no obvious effect on them, except that the noises they made resembled every possible sound that could be made by a living or even dying creature." There was definitely some elephant in there, and possibly some hyena too, with a hint of bedspring. When the din had died down, a voice from a few feet away whispered, ''It's all right, Mr Litvig. It's me, Adrian. Grab my hand and let's go before the others start fighting again.'' ''Fighting? What about?'' ''They drive each other up the wall. Feel this rope. Can you feel it?'' ''Right. You can move fast. We scouted out a trail and strung the rope.'' They hurried through the trees. ''You had to be really close to the tower to see the glow coming through the ruined doorway at the base.'' Undecided Adrian had fixed some of his little cold lights up the inner wall. Stones moved under Moist's feet as he scrambled to the summit. He paid them no attention, but ran up the spiral stairs so fast that when he reached the top, he spun. Mad Owl caught him by the shoulders. No rush, he said cheerfully. we got ten minutes to go. We'd have been ready twenty minutes ago if somebody hadn't lost the hammer. muttered St Alex, tightening a wire. What? i put it in a toolbox, didn't I? said Mad Owl. In a spanner drawer. So... Oh, in their right mind, would look for an hammer in a spanner drawer. Down below, the owl started up again. ''Look,'' said Moist quickly, ''that's not important, is it, right now?'' ''This man,'' said St. Alex, pointing an accusing wrench, ''this man is mad. Not as mad as someone who keeps his screws neatly by size in jam jars,'' said Maddow. ''That counts as sane,'' said Alex hotly. ''But everyone knows rummaging is after fun. Besides, it's done.'' said undecided Adrian. Moist looked up. The Gnu's clax machine rose up into the night, just as it had done on the post office roof. Behind it, in the direction of the city, an H-shaped structure climbed even further. It looked a little like a ship's mast, an effect maybe caused by the wires that steadied it. They rattled in the faint breeze. ''You must have upset someone,'' Adrian went on, while the other two settled down a bit. ''A message was sent through twenty minutes ago from Gilt himself.'' He said the big one will go through duplex. Great care must be taken not to change it in any way. There is to be no other traffic at all until there's a restart message from Gilt, and he'll personally sack the entire staff of any tower that does not strictly follow those instructions. It just goes to show the Grand Trunk is a people company, said Moist. Undecided Adrian and Mad Al walked over to the big frame and began to unwind some ropes from their cleats. Oh well, thought Moist, now for it. There's just one alteration to the plan, he said, and took a breath. We're not sending the woodpecker. What do you mean? said Adrian, dropping his rope. That was the plan. It'll destroy the trunk, said Moist. Yeah, that was the plan, sure enough, said Al. Gilt's as good as painted kick me on his pants. Look, it's falling down of its own accord anyway, OK? It was an experiment in the first place. We can rebuild it faster and better. How? said Moist. ''Where will the money come from?'' ''I know a way to destroy the company but leave the towers standing. ''They were stolen from the Deerhearts and their partners. ''I can give them back. ''But the only way to build a better line of towers ''is to leave the old ones intact. ''The trunk's got to earn.'' ''That's the sort of thing guilt would say,'' snapped Al. ''And it's true,'' said Moist. ''Alex, you're saying, tell the man, ''Keep the trunk operating, replace one tower at a time, ''never dropping any code.'' He waved a hand towards the darkness. The people out in the towers, they want to be proud of what they do, yes? It's tough work, and they don't get paid enough, but they live to shift code, right? The company's running them into the ground, but they still shift code. Adrian tugged at his rope. Hey, the canvas is stuck, he announced to the towering in general. It must have been caught up when we filled it. Oh, I'm sure th- the woodpecker will work, said Moist, plunging on. It might even damage enough towers for long enough. "'but guilt will twist his way out of it. "'Do you understand? "'He'll shout about sabotage.' "'So what?' said Mad Owl. "'We'll have this lot back on the cart in an hour "'and no-one will know we were ever here.' "'I'll climb up and free it, shall I?' "'said Undecided Adrian, shaking the canvas. "'I said it won't work,' said Moist, waving him away. "'Look, Mr Owl, this isn't going to be settled by fire. "'It's going to be settled with words. "'We'll tell the world what happened to the trunk.' "'You've been talking to Killer about that?' said Alex. "'Yes,' said Moist.' But you can't prove anything, said Alex. Weird it was all legal. I doubt it, said Moist. But that doesn't matter. I don't have to prove anything. I said this is about words and how you can twist them and how you can spin them in people's heads so that they think the way you want them to. We'll send a message of our own. And do you know what? The boys in the Towers will want to send it. And when people know what it says, they'll want to believe it because they'll want to live in a world where it's true... It's my word against guilts, and I'm better at them than he is. I can take him down with a sentence, Mr Mad, and leave every tower standing, and no one will ever know how it was done. There was a brief exclamation from behind them, and the sound of canvas unrolling quite fast. Trust me, said Moist. We will never get another chance like this, said Madow. Exactly, said Moist. One man has died for every three towers standing, said Madow. Did you know that? You know they'll never really die while the trunk is alive, said Moist. It was a wild shot, but it hit something. He sensed it. He rushed on. It lives while the code is shifted, and they live with it, always going home. Will you stop that? You can't stop it. I won't stop it. But I can stop guilt. Trust me. The canvas hung like a sail, as if someone intended to launch the tower. It was eighty feet high and thirty feet wide, and moved a little in the wind. Where's Adrian? said Moist. They looked at the sail. They rushed to the edge of the tower. They looked down into the darkness. Adrian, said "Mad owl?" uncertainly. A voice from below said, Yeah? What are you doing? Just, you know, hanging around. And an owl has just landed on my head. There was a small tearing noise beside Moist. Sane Alex had cut a hole in the canvas. Here it comes, he reported. What? said Moist. The message. They're sending from Tower 2. Take a look, Alex said, backing away. Moist peered through the slit, back towards the city. In the distance, a tower was sparkling. Mad Owl strode over to the half-sized clax and grabbed the handles. All right, Mr Litvig, let's hear your plan, he said. Alex, give me a hand. Adrian, just there, hang on, all right? It's trying to push a dead mouse in my ear, said a reproachful voice from below. Moist shut his eyes, lined up the thoughts that had been buzzing for hours and began to speak. Behind and above him, the huge expanse of canvas was just enough to block the line of sight between the two distant towers. In front of him, the smoking ghanoo's half-sized tower was just the right size to look to the next tower in line like a bigger tower a long way off. At night, all you could see were the lights. The clacks in front of him shook as the shutters rattled, and now a new message was dropping across the sky. It was only a few hundred words, when Moist had finished, the clacks rattled out the last few letters and then fell silent. After a while, Moist said, Will they pass it along? Oh yeah, said Mad Owl in a flat voice. They'll send it. You're sitting up in a tower in the mountains and you get a signal like that. You'll get it away and out of your tower as fast as you can. I don't know if you ought to shake your hand or throw you off the tower, said St Alex sullenly. That was evil. What sort of person could dream up something like that? said Badaw. Me! Now, let's pull Adrian up, shall we, said Moyce quickly, and then I'd better get back to the city. An omniscope is one of the most powerful instruments known to magic, and therefore one of the most useless. It can see everything with ease. Getting it to see anything is where wonders have to be performed, because there is so much everything, which is to say everything that can, will, has, should, or might happen in all possible universes, that anything, any previously specified thing, is very hard to find. Before Hex had evolved the controlled thormerisms, completing, in a day, a task that would have taken 500 wizards at least 10 years, omniscopes were used purely as mirrors, because of the wonderful blackness they showed. This, it turned out, is because nothing to see is what most of the universe consists of, and many a wizard has peacefully trimmed his beard while gazing into the dark heart of the cosmos. There were very few steerable omniscopes. They took a long time to make and cost a great deal, and the wizards were not at all keen on making any more. Omniscopes were for them to look at the universe, but not for the universe to look back at them. Besides, the wizards did not believe in making life too easy for people, at least for people who weren't wizards. An omniscope was a rare, treasured and delicate thing. But today was a special occasion, and they had thrown open the doors to the richer, cleaner and more hygienic sections of Ankh-Morpork society. A long table had been set for second tea. Nothing too excessive, a few dozen roast fowls, a couple of cold salmon, 100 linear feet of salad bar, a pile of loaves, one or two kegs of beer, and of course the chutney, pickle and relish train, one trolley not being considered big enough. People had filled their plates and were standing around chatting, and above all, being there. Moist slipped in unnoticed for now because people were watching the university's biggest omniscope. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully thumped the side of the thing with his hand, causing it to rock. It's still not working, Mr Stibbons, he bellowed. Here's that damned enormous fiery eye again. Uh, I'm sure we have the right... um, Ponder began, fiddling with the rear of the big disc. Uh, It's me, uh, Devious sir, said a voice from the omniscope. The fiery eye pulled back and was replaced by an enormous fiery nose. "'I'm I'm here at the Terminal Tower in Genua, sir. "'Sorry about the redness, sir. "'I've picked up an allergy to seaweed, sir. "'Hello, Mr Collarbone! yelled Red Kelly. "'How are you? How's the...?' "'At shellfish research,' murmured Ponder Stibbons. "'Shellfish research coming along!' Uh, "'Not very well, actually, sir. I've, I've developed a nasty... "'Good, good, lucky chap!' Ridcully yelled, cupping his hands to increase the volume. "'I wouldn't mind being ingenuous myself at this time of year. Sun, sea, surf and sand, eh?' Uh, "'Actually, it's the wet season, sir, and I'm a bit worried about this fungus that's growing on the omnis... "'Wonderful!' shouted Ridcully. "'Well, I can't stand here and chew your fat all day. Has anything arrived? We are agog!' Uh, "'Could you just stand back a little further, please, Mr Collarbone?' said Ponder. "'And you don't really need to speak so loudly, Arch-Chancellor?' "'Chap's a long way away, man,' said Ridcully. "'Not as such, sir,' said Ponder, with well-honed patience. "Uh, "'Very well, uh, Mr Mr. Collarbone, you may proceed.' The crowd behind the Arch-Chancellor pressed forward. Mr Collarbone backed away. This was all a bit too much for a man who spent his days with no-one to talk to but bivalves.' Uh, "'I've had a message by clacks, sir, but,' he began, "'nothing from the post-office,' said Ridcully. "'No, sir, nothing, sir.' There were cheers and boos and general laughter from the crowd. From his shadowy corner, moist saw Lord Vetinari, right by the Arch-Chancellor. He scanned the rest of the crowd and spotted Reacher Gilt, standing off to one side and, surprisingly, not smiling. And Gilt saw him. One look was enough. The man wasn't certain, not... Totally certain. Welcome to fear, said Moist to himself. It's hope, turned inside out. You know it can't go wrong. You're sure it can't go wrong. But it might. I've got you. Devious Collarbone coughed. Uh, uh, but I don't think this is the message Arch-Chancellor Ridcully sent, he said, his voice gone squeaky with nervousness. What makes you think that, man? Uh, because it says it isn't. Collarbone quavered. It says it's from the dead people. You mean it's an old message, said Ridcully. "Uh, No, sir. Uh, I'd better read it, shall I? Do you want me to read it? That's the point, man. In the big disc of glass, Collarbone cleared his throat. Who will listen to the dead? We who died so that words could fly demand justice now. These are the crimes of the board of the Grand Trunk. Theft, embezzlement... Breach of trust. Corporate murder. Chapter 14. Deliverance. Lord Veterinary requests silence. Mr Lipvig comes down. Mr Pump moves on. Fooling no one but yourself. The bird. The concludium. Freedom of choice. The great hall was in uproar. Most of the wizards took the opportunity to congregate at the buffet, which was now clear. If there's one thing a wizard hates, it's having to wait while the person in front of them is in two minds about coleslaw. It's a salad bar, they say. It's got the kind of stuff salad bars have. If it was surprising, it wouldn't be a salad bar. You're not here to look at it. What do you expect to find? Rhino chunks? Pickled coelacanthes? The lecturer, in recent runes, ladled more bacon bits into his salad bowl, having artfully constructed buttresses of celery and breastworks of cabbage to increase its depth five times. "'Any of you fellows know what this is all about?' he said, raising his voice above the din. "'Seems to be upsetting a lot of people.' "'It's this clax business,' said the chair of indefinite studies. "'I've never trusted it. "'Poor Collarbone, decent young man in his way, a good man with a whelk. "'Seems to be in a spot of bother.' It was quite a large spot. Devious Collarbone was opening and shutting his mouth on the other side of the glass like a stranded fish. In front of him, Mustram Ridcully reddened with anger, his tried and tested approach to most problems. ''Sorry, sir, but this is what it says and you asked me to read it,'' Collarbone protested. ''It goes on and on, sir.'' ''And that's what the clacks people gave you?'' The Arch-Chancellor demanded. ''Are you sure?'' "'Yes, sir. They did look at me in a funny way, sir, but this is definitely it. "'Why should I make anything up, Arch-Chancellor? "'I spend most of my time in a tank, sir. "'A boring, boring, lonely tank, sir!' "'Not one more word!' screamed Greeningham. "'I forbid it!' "'Beside him, Mr Nutmeg had sprayed his drink across several dripping guests. "'Excuse me! You forbid it, sir!' Said Ridcully, turning on Greenyham in sudden fury, "Sir, I am the master of this college. I will not, sir, be told what to do in my own university. If there is anything to be forbidden here, sir, I will do the forbidding. Thank you. Go ahead, Mister Collarbone." Oh, <laughs> Collarbone panted, longing for death. I said, "Carry on, man." Uh, uh, yes. There was no safety. There, there was no pride. All there was was money. Everything became money, and money became everything. Money treated us as if we were things, and we died.' "'Is there no law in this place that is outright slander?' shouted Stowley. "'It's a trick of some sort.' "'By whom, sir?' roared Red Do you mean to suggest that Mr Collarbone, a young wizard of great integrity, who I may say is doing wonderful work with snakes... uh, shellfish, murmured Ponder Stibbons. Shellfish? Is playing some kind of joke? How dare you, sir! Continue, Mr Collarbone. I, I, I... I. That is an order, Dr Collarbone! Chancellor Ridcully was a great believer in retaliation by promotion. You couldn't have civilians criticising one of his wizards. That was his job. Uh, blood oils the machinery of the grand trunk "'as willing loyal people pay with their lives "'for the board's culpable stupidity.' "'The hubbub rose again. "'Moist saw Lord Vetinari's gaze traverse the room. "'He didn't duck in time. "'The patrician's stare passed right through him, "'carrying away who knew what. "'An eyebrow rose in interrogation. "'Moist looked away and sought out guilt. "'He wasn't there.' In the omniscope, Mr Collarbone's nose now glowed like a beacon. He struggled, dropping pages, losing his place, but pressing on with the dogged, dull determination of a man who could spend all day watching one oyster. ''Nothing less than an attempt to blacken our good names in front of the whole city,'' Stowley was protesting. ''Unaware of the toll that is being taken...'' "'What can we say of the men who caused this, "'who sat in comfort round their table "'and killed us by numbers? "'This I will sue the university! "'I will sue the university!' "'Screamed Greeningham. "'He picked up a chair and hurled it at the omniscope. "'Halfway to the glass, "'it turned into a small flock of doves, "'which panicked and soared up to the roof. "'Oh, please sue the university!' "'Ridcully bellowed. "'We've got a pond full of people "'who try to sue the university!' "'Silence!' "'said Vetinari. "'It wasn't a very loud word, "'but it had an effect rather like that "'of a drop of black ink in a glass of clear water. "'The word spread out in coils and tendrils "'getting everywhere. "'It strangled the noise. "'Of course, there is always someone not paying attention. "'And furthermore,' Stoley went on, "'oblivious to the unfolding hush "'in his own little world of righteous indignation, "'it's plain that I will have silence,' "'Vetinari stated.' Stoley stopped.' Looked around and deflated. Silence ruled. Very good, said veterinary quickly. He nodded at Commander Vimes of the watch, who whispered to another watchman who pushed his way through the crowd and towards the door. Veterinary turned to Ridcully. Arch Chancellor, I would be grateful if you would instruct your student to continue, please, he said in the same calm tone. Certainly. Off you go, Professor Collarbone, in your own time. Uh, 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 it says further on uh, th- the men obtained control of the trunk via a ruse known as the double lever in the main using money entrusted to them by clients who did not suspect a- stop reading that greeningham shouted this is ridiculous it is just slander upon slander i'm certain i spoke mr greeningham said veterinary greeningham faltered good thank you "'said Vettinari. "'These are very serious allegations, certainly. "'Embezzlement? Murder? "'I'm sure that Mr... sorry, Professor Collarbone is a trustworthy man.' "'In the Omniscope, devious Collarbone, "'unseen University's newest professor nodded desperately, "'who is only reading what has been delivered, "'so it would appear that they have originated from within your own company. "'Serious allegations, Mr. Greenyham.' "'Made in front of all these people. "'Are you suggesting I should treat them as some sort of prank?' "'The city is watching, Mr Greeningham. "'Oh, Stowley appears to be ill.' "'This is not the place for—' Greeningham tried, "'aware once more of the creaking of ice. "'It is the ideal place,' said Vetinari. "'It is public.' In the circumstances, given the nature of the allegations, I'm sure everyone would require that I get to the bottom of them as soon as possible, if only to prove them totally groundless. He looked around. There was a chorus of agreement. Even the upper crust loved to show. What do you say, Mr. Greeningham? said veterinary Greeningham said nothing. The cracks were spreading. The ice was breaking up on every side. Very well, said veterinary. He turned to the figure beside him. Commander Vimes, be so kind as to send men to the offices of the Grand Trunk Company, Ank Stowe Associates, Stowe Plains Holdings, Anc Futures, and particularly to the premises of the Ank Morpork Mercantile Credit Bank. Inform the manager, Mr. Cheeseborough, that the bank is closed for audit and I wish to see him in my office at his earliest convenience. Any person in any of those premises who so much as moves a piece of paper, before my clerks arrive, will be arrested and held complicit in any or all of such offences as may be uncovered. While this is happening, moreover, no person concerned with the Grand Trunk Company or any of its employees is to leave this room. "'You can't do that!' Greeningham protested weakly, but the fire had been drained out of him. Mr. Stowley had collapsed on the floor with his head in his hands. "'Can I not?' said Veterinary. "'I am a tyrant. It's what we do.' "'What is happening? Who am I? Where is this place?' moaned Stowley, a man who believed in laying down some groundwork as soon as possible. "'But there's no evidence! That wizard's lying! Someone must have been bribed!' Greenyham pleaded. Not only had the ice broken up, but he was on the floe with the big hungry walrus. "'Mr. Greenyham,' said Lord Veterinari, "'one more uninvited outburst from you and you will be imprisoned. I hope that is clear.' "'On what charge?' said Greenyham, "'still managing to find a last reserve of hauteur from somewhere. "'There doesn't have to be one!' "'Robe swirling like the edge of darkness, "'Vetinari swung round to the Omniscope and devious Collarbone, "'for whom two thousand miles suddenly wasn't far enough. "'Continue, Professor. There will be no further interruptions.' "'Moist watched the audience as Collarbone stuttered "'and mispronounced his way through the rest of the message.' It dealt with generalities rather than particulars, but there were dates and names and thundering denunciations. There was nothing new, not really new, but it was packaged in fine language and it was delivered by the dead. We who died on the dark towers demand this of you. You ought to be ashamed. It was one thing to put words in the mouths of the gods. Priests did it all the time. But this, this was a step too far. You had to be some kind of a bastard to think of something like this. He relaxed a bit. A fine, upstanding citizen wouldn't have stooped so low, but he hadn't got this job because he was a fine, upstanding citizen. Some tasks needed a good, honest hammer. Others needed a twisty corkscrew. With any luck, he could believe that, if he really tried. There had been a late fall of snow, and the fir trees around Tower 181 were crusted with white under the hard, bright starlight. Everyone was up there tonight. Grandad, Roger... Big Stevo, o Wheezy half sides, who was a dwarf and had to sit on a cushion to reach the keyboards, and Princess. There had been a few muffled exclamations as the message came through. Now there was silence except for the sighing of the wind. Princess could see people's breath in the air. Grandad was drumming his fingers on the woodwork. Then Wheezy said, Was that all real? The breath clouds got denser. People were relaxing, coming back to the real world. ''You saw the instructions we got?'' said Grandad, staring across the dark forests. ''Don't change anything. Send it on, they told us. We sent it on. We damn well did send it on.'' ''Who's it from?'' said Stevo. ''It doesn't matter,'' said Grandad. ''Message comes in. Message goes out. Message moves on.'' ''Yeah, but was it really from?'' Stevo began. ''Bloody hell, Stevo, we really don't know when to shut up, do you?'' said Roger. ''Only I heard about Tower 93, where the the guys died and the tower sent a distress signal all by itself,'' mumbled Stevo. He was fast on the keys, but not knowing when to shut up was only one of his social failings. In a tower, it could get you killed. ''Dead man's handle,'' said Grandad. ''You should know that. If there is no activity for ten minutes when a signature key is slotted, the drum drops the Jacquard into the slot and the counterweight falls and the tower sends the help sign.'' He spoke the words as if reading them from a manual. ''Yeah, but I heard that in Tower 93 the Jacquard was wedged and... ''I can't stand this,'' muttered Grandad. ''Roger, let's get this tower working again.'' We've got local signals to send, haven't we? Sure, uh, and, and stuff waiting on the drum, said Roger. But Gilt said we weren't to restart until... Gilt can kiss my... Grandad began, then remembered the present company and finished. Donkey, you read what went through just now. Do you think that, bas- that man is still in charge? Princess looked out from the upstream window. When eight two's lit up, she announced. Right, let's light up and shift code, Grandad growled. That's what we do. And who's going to stop us? All those without something to do, get out. We're running. Princess went out onto the little platform to be out of the way. Underfoot, the snow was like icing sugar. In her nostrils, the air was like knives. When she looked across the mountains, in the direction she'd learned to think of as downstream, she could see that Tower 180 was sending. At the moment, she heard the thump and click of 181's own shutters opening, dislodging snow. We shift code, she thought. It's what we do. Up on the tower, watching the star-like twinkle of the trunk in the clear, freezing air, it was like being part of the sky. And she wondered what Grandad most feared. That dead claxman could send messages to the living, or that they couldn't. Collarbone finished. Then he produced a handkerchief and rubbed away at whatever the green stuff was that had begun to grow on the glass. This made a squeaking sound. He peered nervously through the smear. Uh, ''Is is that all right, sir? I'm not in some sort of trouble, am I?'' he asked. ''Only, at the moment, I think I'm close to translating the the mating call of the giant clam.'' ''Thank you, Professor Collarbone. Good job. Well done. That will be all,'' said Arch-Chancellor Ridcully, coldly. ''Unhinge the mechanism, Mr. Stibbons. A look of fervid relief passed across devious Collarbone's face just before the omniscope went blank. ''Mr. Pony, you are the chief engineer of the Grand Trunk, are you not?'' said Veterinari, before the babble could rise again. The engineer, suddenly the focus of attention, backed away, waving his hands frantically. "'Please, your lordship, I'm just an engineer. I don't know anything.' "'Calm yourself, please. Have you heard that the souls of dead men travel on the trunk?' "'Oh, yes, your lordship. Is it true?' "'Well, there,' Pony looked round a hunted man. He'd got his pink flimsies, and they would show everyone that he was nothing more than a man who'd tried to make things work. But right now all he could find on his side was the truth.' He took refuge in it. I can't see how, but, well, sometimes when you're up a tower of a night and the shutters are a-rattling and the wind singing in the rigging, well, you might think it's true. I believe there is a tradition called sending home, said Lord Veterinary. The engineer looked surprised. Why, yes, sir, but... Pony felt he ought to wave a little flag for a rational world in which, at the moment, he didn't have a lot of faith. The trunk was dark before we ran the message, so I don't see how the message could have got on... "'Unless, of course, the dead put it there,' said Lord Vetinari. "'Mr. Pony, for the good of your soul, and not least your body, you will go now to the Tump Tower, escorted by one of Commander Vimes's men, and send a brief message to all the towers. You will obtain the paper tapes, which I believe are known as drum rolls, from all the towers on the Grand Trunk.' i understand that they show a record of all messages originating at that tower which cannot be readily altered that will take weeks to do sir pony protested an early start in the morning would seem in order then said lord veterinari mr pony who had suddenly spotted that a spell a long way from Ankh-Morpork might be a very healthy option just now nodded and said right you are my lord the grand trunk will remain closed in the interim said lord veterinari "'It's private property!' Greeningham burst out. "'Tyrants, remember,' said Vettinari, almost cheerfully. "'But I'm sure that the audit will serve to sort out "'at least some aspects of this mystery. "'One of them, of course, is that Mr. Reacher Gilt does not seem to be in this room.' "'Every head turned. "'Perhaps he remembered another engagement,' said Lord Vettinari. "'I think he slipped out some time ago.' It dawned on the directors of the Grand Trunk that their chairman was absent, and, which was worse, they weren't. They drew together. "'I wonder if, uh, at this point, at least we could discuss the matter with you privately, Your Lordship,' said Greeningham. "'Recher was not an easy man to deal with, I'm afraid.' "'Not a team player,' gasped Nutmeg. "'Oh,' said Storley, "'what is this place? Who are all these people?' "'Left us totally in the dark most of the time,' said Greeningham. ''Can't remember a thing,'' said Stowley. ''I'm not fit to testify, any doctor will tell you. I think I can say on behalf of all of us that we were suspicious of him all along. Mine's a not a blessed thing. What's this thing with fingers on? Who am I?'' Lord Vetinari stared at the board for five seconds longer than was comfortable, while tapping his chin gently with the knob of his cane. He smiled faintly. ''Quite,'' he said. ''Commander Vimes, I think it would be iniquitous to detain these gentlemen here any longer.'' "'As the faces in front of him relaxed into smiles full of hope, "'that greatest of all gifts, he added, "'To the cells with them, Commander. "'Separate cells, if you please. "'I shall see them in the morning. "'And if Mr. Slant comes to see you on their behalf, "'do tell him I'd like a little chat, will you?' "'That sounded good. "'Moist strolled towards the door while the hubbub rose, "'and had almost made it when Lord Vetinari's voice "'came out of the throng like a knife. "'Leaving so soon, Mr. Lipvig, do wait a moment.' "'I shall give you a lift back to your famous post-office.' "'For a moment, just a slice of a second, "'Moist contemplated running. "'He did not do so. "'What would be the point?' "'The crowd parted hurriedly "'as Lord Vetinari headed towards the door. "'Behind him the watch closed in. "'Ultimately, there is the freedom to take the consequences.' "'The patrician leaned back in the leather upholstery "'as the coach drew away.' "'What a strange evening, Mr Lipvig,' he said. "'Yes, indeed. "'Moist, like the suddenly bewildered Mr Stowley, "'considered that his future happiness lay in saying as little as possible. "'Yes, sir,' he said. "'I wonder if that engineer will find any evidence "'that the strange message was put on the clacks by human hands,' he wondered aloud. "'I don't know, my lord.' "'You don't?' "'No, sir.' "'Ah,' said Vetinari. "'Well, the dead are known to speak sometimes.' Ouija boards and séances and so on. Who can say they wouldn't use the medium of the clacks? Not me, sir. And you are clearly enjoying your new career, Mr. Lipwig. Yes, sir. Good. On Monday, your duties will include the administration of the Grand Trunk. It is being taken over by the city. Oh, well. So much for future happiness. No, my lord, said Moist. Veterinari raised an eyebrow. There is an alternative, Mr. Lipwig. It really is private property, sir. It belongs to the Deerhearts and the other people who built it. My, my, how the worm turns, said Vettinari. But the trouble is, you see, they weren't good at business, only at mechanisms. Otherwise, they would have seen through guilt. The freedom to succeed goes hand in hand with the freedom to fail. It was robbery by numbers, said Moist. It was find the lady done with ledgers. They didn't stand a chance. Vettinari sighed. "'You drive a hard bargain, Mr Lipvig.' Moist, who wasn't aware he had tried to drive a bargain at all, said nothing. "'Oh, very well. "'The question of ownership will remain in the bayons for now "'until we have plumbed the sordid depths of this affair. "'But what I truly meant was that a great many people "'depend on the trunk for their living. "'Out of sheer humanitarian considerations, we must do something. "'Sort things out, postmaster. "'But I'm going to have my hands more than full with the post office.' "'Moist protested. "'I hope you are. "'But in my experience, "'the best way to get something done "'is to give it to someone who is busy,' said Vetinari. "'In that case, I'm going to keep the grand trunk running,' said Moist. "'In honour of the dead, perhaps,' said Vetinari. "'Yes. As you wish. "'Now here is your stop.' "'As the coachman opened the door, "'Lord Vetinari leaned towards Moist. "'Oh! And before dawn,' "'I do suggest you go and check that everyone's left the old wizarding tower,' he said. "'What do you mean, sir?' said Moist. "'He knew his face betrayed nothing. "'Veternares sat back. "'Well done, Mr. Libvig. "'There was a crowd outside the post-office, "'and a cheer went up as Moist made his way to the doors. "'It was raining now, a grey, sooty drizzle "'that was little more than fog with a slight weight problem. "'Some of the staff were waiting inside.' he realised the news hadn't got around. Even Ankh Moorpork's permanent rumour mill hadn't been able to beat him back from the university. ''What's happened, Postmaster?'' said Grote, his hands twisting together. ''Have they won?'' ''No,'' said Moist, but they picked up the edge in his voice. ''Have we won?'' ''The Arch-Chancellor will have to decide that,'' said Moist. ''I suppose we won't know for weeks. The clax has been shut down, though. I'm sorry, it's all complicated.'' He left them standing and staring as he trudged up to his office where Mr. Pump was standing in the corner. "'Good evening, Mr. Lipvig, the golem boomed. Moist sat down and put his head in his hands. This was victory, but it didn't feel like it. It felt like a mess. The bets? Well, if Leadpipe got to Genoa, you could make a case under the rules that he'd won. But Moist had a feeling that all bets were off now. That meant people would get their money back at least. He'd have to keep the trunk going, God's knew how, "'He'd sort of promised a GNU, hadn't he? "'And it was amazing how people had come to rely on the clax. "'He wouldn't know how Leadpipe had fared for weeks, "'and even Moist had got used to daily news from Genua. "'It was like having a finger cut off, "'but the clax was a big, cumbersome monster of a thing. "'Too many towers, too many people, too much effort. "'There had to be a way of making it better and sleeker and cheaper, "'or maybe it was something so big that no-one could run it at a profit. "'Maybe it was like the post office.' Maybe the profit turned up, spread around the whole of society. Tomorrow, he'd have to take it all seriously. Proper mail runs. Many more staff. Hundreds of things to do, and hundreds of other things to do before he could do those things. It wasn't going to be fun anymore, cocking a snook, whatever a snook was, at the big slow giant. He'd won, so he'd have to pick up the pieces and make everything work, and come in here the next day and do it all again. This wasn't how it was supposed to end. You won, and you pocketed the cash and walked away. That was how the game was supposed to go, wasn't it? His eye fell on Anghamrad's message box, on its twisted, corroded strap, and he wished he was at the bottom of the sea. At Mr Lipvig. He looked up. Drumnot, the clerk, was standing in the doorway, with another clerk behind him. Yes? "Uh, Sorry to disturb you, sir, said the clerk. We're here to see Mr Pump. Just a minor adjustment, if you don't mind. What? Oh, fine. Whatever. Go ahead. Moist waved a hand vaguely. The two men walked over to the golem. There was some muted conversation, and then it knelt down and they unscrewed the top of its head. Moist stared in horror. He knew it was done, of course, but it was shocking to see it happening. There was some rummaging around that he couldn't make out, and then the cranium was replaced with a little pottery noise. Uh, ''Sorry to have disturbed you, sir,'' said Drumnott, and the clerks left. Mr Pump stayed on his knees for a moment, and then rose slowly. The red eyes focused on Moist, and the golem stuck out his hand. "'I do not know what a pleasure is, but I am sure that if I did, "'then working with you would have been one,' he said. "'Now I must leave you. I have another task.' "'You're not my, um, parole officer any more?' said Moist, taken aback. "'Correct.' "'Hold on,' said Moist, as lights dawned. "'Is veterinary sending you after guilt?' "'I am not at liberty to say.' "'He is, isn't he? You're not following me any more.' "'I am not following you any more. "'So I'm free to go? "'I am not at liberty to say good-night, Mr. Lipvig.' "'Mr. Pump paused at the door. "'I am not certain what happiness is either, Mr. Lipvig, "'but I think, yes, I think I am happy to have met you.' "'And, ducking to get out through the doorway, the golem left. "'That only leaves the werewolf.' "'thought part of Moist's mind, faster than light. "'And they're not much good at boats "'and completely lost when it comes to oceans. "'It's the middle of the night, "'the watcher running around like madmen, "'everyone's busy, I've got a bit of cash "'and I've still got the diamond ring and a deck of cards. "'Who'd notice? Who'd care? Who'd worry?' "'He could go anywhere. "'But that wasn't really him thinking that, was it? "'It was just a few old brain cells running on automatic. "'There wasn't anywhere to go, not any more.' He walked over to the big hole in the wall and looked down into the hall. Did anyone go home here? But now the news had got around, and if you wanted any hope of anything delivered anywhere tomorrow, you came to the post office. It was quite busy even now. "'Cup of tea, Mr Litvig?' said the voice of Stanley behind him. "'Thank you, Stanley,' said Moist, without looking round. Down below, Miss MacAlariat was standing on a chair and nailing something to the wall.' ''Everyone says we've won, sir, cos the clack's been shut down cos the directors are in prison, sir. ''They say all Mr. Upright has to do is get there, but Mr. Groat says the bookies probably won't pay up, sir. ''And the King of Lanka wants some stamps printed, but it will come a bit pricey, sir, ''since they only write about ten letters a year up there. ''Still, we've showed them, eh, sir, the post office is back.'' ''It's some kind of banner,'' said Moist aloud. ''Sorry, Mr. Litvig,'' said Stanley. ''Er, uh, nothing. Er, uh, thank you, Stanley. Have fun with the stamps.'' "'Good to see you standing up so straight.' "'It's like having a new life, sir,' said Stanley. "'I'd better go, sir. They need help with the sorting.' The banner was crude. It read, "'Thank you, Mr Lipwick.' Gloom rolled around moist. It was always bad after he'd won, but this time was the worst. For days his mind had been flying and he'd felt alive. Now he felt numb. They'd put up a banner like that, and he was a liar and a thief.' He'd fooled them all, and there they were, thanking him for fooling them. A quiet voice from the doorway behind him said, ''Mad Al and the boys told me what you did.'' ''Oh,'' said Moist, still not turning round. ''She'll be lighting a cigarette,'' he thought. ''It wasn't a nice thing to do,'' Adora Bell Dearheart went on in the same level tone. ''There wasn't a nice thing that would work,'' said Moist. ''Are you going to tell me that the ghost of my brother put the idea in your head?'' ''She said. ''No.'' "'I dreamed it up myself,' said Moist. "'Good. "'If you'd tried that, "'you'd be limping for the rest of your life, believe me.' "'Thank you,' said Moist, leadenly. "'It was just a lie I knew people would want to believe. "'Just a lie. "'It was a way to keep the post-office going "'and get the grand trunk out of Gilt's hands. "'You'll probably get it back, if you want it. "'You and all the other people, Gilt swindled. "'I'll help if I can, but I don't want thanking.' "'He felt her draw nearer. "'It's not a lie.' she said. "'It's what ought to have been true. "'It pleased my mother. "'Does she think it's true? "'She doesn't want to think it isn't. "'No one does. I can't stand this "'moist thought. Look, "'I know what I'm like,' he said. "'I'm not the person everyone thinks I am. "'I just wanted to prove to myself "'I'm not like guilt. "'More than a hammer, you understand? "'But I'm still a fraud by trade. "'I thought you knew that. "'I can fake sincerity so well "'that even I can't tell. "'I mess with people's heads.' ''You're fooling no one but yourself,'' said Miss Dearhart, and reached for his hand. Moist shook her off and ran out of the building, out of the city and back to his old life or lives, always moving on, selling glasses diamond, but somehow it just didn't seem to work any more. The flare wasn't there. The fun had dropped out of it. Even the cards didn't seem to work for him. The money ran out, and one winter, in some inn that was no more than a slum, he turned his face to the wall, and an angel appeared.'' "'What just happened?' said Miss Dearhart. "'Perhaps you do get two. "'Only a passing thought,' said Moist. "'He let the golden glow rise. "'He'd fooled them all, even here. "'But the good bit was he could go on doing it. "'He didn't have to stop. "'All he had to do was remind himself, "'every few months, that he could quit any time. "'Provided he knew he could, he'd never have to. "'And there was Miss Dearhart, "'without a cigarette in her mouth, only a foot away.' He leaned forward. There was a loud cough behind them. It turned out to have come from Grote, who was holding a large parcel. Sorry to interrupt, sir, but this just arrived for you, he said, and sniffed disapprovingly. Messenger, not one of ours. I thought I'd better bring it straight up, because there's something moving about inside it. There was, and air holes, Moist noted. He opened the lid with care and pulled his fingers away just in time. Twelve and a half percent. Twelve and a half percent, screamed the cockatoo, and landed on Grote's hat. There was no note inside, and nothing on the box but the address. Why'd someone send you a parrot, said Grote, not caring to raise a hand within reach of the curved beak. It's gilts, isn't it? said Miss Dearhart. He's given you the bird. Moist smiled. It looks like it, yes. Pieces of eight. Twelve and a half percent, yelled the cockatoo. Take it away, will you, Mr Grote, said Moist. Teach it to say... "'To say, trust me,' said Miss Dearhart. "'Good one,' said Moist. "'Yes, do that, Mr Grote.' "'When Grote had gone, with the cockatoo balancing happily on his shoulder, "'Moist turned back the woman. "'And tomorrow,' he said, "'I'll definitely get the chandeliers back.' "'What?' "'Most of this place doesn't have a ceiling,' said Miss Dearhart, laughing. First things first, trust me, and then, who knows, "'I might even find the fine, polished counter.' There's no end to what's possible. And out in the bustling cavern, white feathers began to fall from the roof. They may have been from an angel, but were more likely to be coming from the pigeon that a hawk was just disembowelling on a beam. Still, they were feathers. It's all about style. Sometimes the truth is arrived at by adding all the little lies together and deducting them from the totality of what is known. Lord Veterinari stood at the top of the stairs in the great hall of the palace and looked down on his clerks. They'd taken over the whole huge floor for this concludium. Chalked markings, circles, squares, triangles, were drawn here and there on the floor. Within them, papers and ledgers were piled in dangerously neat heaps. And there were clerks, some working inside the outlines and some moving noiselessly from one outline to another, bearing pieces of paper as if they were a sacrament. Periodically, clerks and watchmen arrived with more files and ledgers, which were solemnly received, assessed and added to the relevant pile abacuses clicked everywhere, clerks would pad back and forth, and sometimes they would meet in a triangle and bend their heads in quiet discussion. This might result in their heading away in new directions, or increasingly as the night wore on, one clerk would go and chalk a new outline which would begin to fill with paper. Sometimes an outline would be emptied and rubbed out, and its contents distributed among nearby outlines." No enchanter's circle, no mystic's mandala was ever drawn out with such painfully meticulous care as the conclusions being played out on the floor. Hour after hour it went on, with a patience that at first terrified and then bored. It was the warfare of clerks, and it harried the enemy through many columns and files. Moist could read words that weren't there, but the clerks found the numbers that weren't there, or were there twice, or were there but going the wrong way. They didn't hurry peel away the lies, and the truth would emerge, naked and ashamed and with nowhere else to hide. At three a.m., Mr. Cheesborough arrived, in a hurry and bitter tears, to learn that his bank was a shell of paper. He brought his own clerks, with their nightshirts tucked into hastily donned trousers, who went down on their knees alongside the other men and spread out more papers, double-checking figures in the hope that if you stared at numbers long enough, they'd add up differently.' And then the watch turned up with a small red ledger, and it was given a circle of its own, and soon the whole pattern reformed around it. It wasn't until almost dawn that the sombre men arrived. They were older and fatter and better, but not showily, never showily dressed, and moved with the gravity of serious money. They were financiers too, richer than kings, who were often quite poor, but hardly anyone in the city outside their circle knew them or would notice them in the street. They spoke quietly to Cheesborough as to one who'd suffered a bereavement, and then talked among themselves, and used little gold-propelling pencils in neat little notebooks to make figures dance and jump through hoops. Then quiet agreement was reached, and hands were shaken, which in this circle carried infinitely more weight than any written contract. The first domino had been steadied. The pillars of the world ceased to tremble. The credit bank would open in the morning, and when it did so, bills would be honoured, wages would be paid, the city would be fed. They'd saved the city with gold more easily at this point than any hero could have managed with steel. But in truth, it had not exactly been gold, or even the promise of gold, but more like the fantasy of gold, the fairy dream that the gold is there at the end of the rainbow, and will continue to be there forever, provided, naturally, that you don't go and look. This is known as finance. On the way back home to a simple breakfast, one of them dropped off at the Guild of Assassins to pay his respects to his old friend Lord Downey, during which current affairs were only lightly touched upon, and Reacher guilt wherever he had gone, was now certainly the worst insurance risk in the world. The people who guard the rainbow don't like those who get in the way of the sun." Epilogue. Some time after. The figure in the chair did not have long hair or an eye-patch. It didn't have a beard. Or, rather, it wasn't intending to have a beard. It hadn't shaved for several days. It groaned. "'Ah, Mr. Gilt,' said Lord Veterinari, looking up from his playing-board. "'You are awake, I see.' I'm sorry for the manner in which you were brought here, but some quite expensive people wish to see you dead, and I thought it would be a good idea if we had this little meeting before they did. I don't know who you're talking about, said the figure. My name is Randolph Stippler, and I have papers to prove it. And wonderful papers they are, Mr. Gilt, but enough of that. No, it is about angels that I wish to talk to you now.' Reacher Gilt, wincing occasionally as the aches from three days of being carried by a golem made themselves felt, listened in mounting puzzlement to the angelic theories of Lord Veterinari. Brings me on to my point, Mr. Gilt. The royal mint needs an entirely new approach. Frankly, it's moribund, and not at all what we need in the century of the anchovy. Yet there is a way forward— In recent months, Mr Lipfig's celebrated stamps have become a second currency in this city. So light, so easy to carry, you can even send them through the post. Fascinating, Mr Gilt. At last, people are loosening their grip on the idea that money should be shiny. Do you know that a typical one-penny stamp may change hands up to twelve times before being affixed to an envelope and redeemed? What the mint needs... "'To see it through is a man who understands the dream of currency. "'There will be a salary and, I believe, a hat.' "'You are offering me a job?' "'Yes, Mr. Stipler,' said veterinary, "'And, to show the sincerity of my offer, let me point out the door behind you. "'If, at any time in this interview, you feel you wish to leave, "'you have only to step through it and you will never hear from me again.' Some little time later, the clerk Drumnot padded into the room. Lord Vettinari was reading a report on the previous night's secret meeting of the Thieves' Guild Inner Inner Council. He tidied up the trays quite noiselessly, and then came and stood by Vettinari. "'There are ten overnights off the clacks, my lord,' he said. "'It's good to have it back in operation.' "'Indeed, yes,' said Vettinari, not looking up. "'Otherwise, how in the world would people be able to find out what we want them to think?' Any foreign mail? The usual packets, my lord. The Obervelt one has been most deftly tempered with. Ah, dear Lady Margolotta, said Vetinari, smiling. I've taken the liberty of removing the stamps for my nephew, my lord, Drumnot went on. Of course, said Veterinari, waving a hand. Drumnot looked around the office and focused on the slab where the little stone armies were endlessly in combat. Ah, "'I see you have one, my lord,' he said. "'Yes, I must make a note of the gambit. "'But, Mr. Gilt, I notice he's not here.' "'Betanari sighed. "'You have to admire a man who really believes in freedom of choice,' "'he said, looking at the open doorway. "'Sadly, he did not believe in angels. "'That is the end of Going Postal.' It was written by Terry Pratchett and read by Stephen Briggs. This has been an ISIS audiobooks presentation. Other titles from ISIS by this author include The Last Hero, Truckers and A Hat Full of Sky. For further details of our extensive catalogue of audiobooks on cassette and CD, please call our free phone number 0800 731 5637.